Hey, how's everybody doing? Good. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's start with our, our public reading of Scripture. Turn with me to Luke 23 on your devices, or we have Bibles as you come in. Luke 23, uh, we'll be uh, starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. This is the word of the Lord. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker along with her father, Casper, and her sister, Betsy, hid many, many Jewish folks from the Nazis during the Holocaust, saving untold lives. They eventually were apprehended and caught. The three of them sent to prison. Casper died 10 days later. Corey was uh, three months in solitary confinement. She finally got her trial in front of a a Nazi lieutenant, if you could call it a trial, and she stood before him testifying of her work and her advocacy for handicapped. And the lieutenant sneered at her because, of course, the Nazis had been exterminating handicapped folks for years. And she said, sir, I think a handicapped person is perhaps of even greater value than a, a watchmaker like myself and certainly perhaps of greater value than a lieutenant. And that comment didn't go over well. She was sent with her sister Betsy then to Ravensbrück concentration camp where they smuggled Bibles in and held worship services and tried their best to to faithfully follow Jesus under very dark conditions. They dreamed when they got out to go back to their homeland of the Netherlands and open homes for healing of people whose lives had been ravaged during the war. Betsy even had a dream one night where she pictured an actual house, and sadly, she never got to see that dream come to reality. Betsy passed away in December 1944. Fifteen days later, Corey was released from Ravensbrook on a clerical error, which was really miraculous because later that week, all the women her age were marched into the gas chamber. She returned to the Netherlands and indeed began to open homes for the physical and the emotional healing of folks that had passed through the war. Someone even gifted her with a home that looked exactly like the home her sister Bessie had dreamed about. But something was missing. Uh, Corey saw miracles happening physically and doctors giving their free time and people healing physically, even some emotional healing. But the healing always stopped short. And what she discovered was that what they were missing was forgiveness. She recognized it in her own heart, the bondage that was still in there, the things that she was holding onto. And she went on this journey of, of forgiveness where she wrestled, the, she came out the other side, and she began to travel throughout Europe, throughout all the countries that had been decimated by war, talking about God's radical love and his forgiveness, how you can be free from occupation, but only true freedom comes through forgiveness. She had no idea how that would be put to test. One night in Munich, she finished up her talk and she looked up and there was a heavyset balding man in his mid-50s, gray overcoat, brown felt hat he was holding in his hand. And when she saw him and looked at his face, she shuddered. She knew who he was. She immediately saw the, 
the blue uniform and the visored cap and the skull and the crossbones. This man had been a brutal guard at Ravensbrook, even targeting her sweet sister, Betsy. He did not recognize Corey, but she recognized him. He approached her, he said, Fraulein, how good it is, as you say, that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And this was Corey's message of what God does with our sins. They go, he sinks them down to the bottom of the ocean, they're gone. He was affirming that, and he sticks out his hand. She, she couldn't do it. She said she was frozen. She wanted to raise her arm, but she couldn't get it up. And then he went on awkwardly. He said, I, since being a guard at Ravensbrook, have come to become, become a follower of Jesus, and I've experienced his personal forgiveness in my life. And then he sticks out his hand again, and he says, Fraulein, will you forgive me? <laughs> Jeez. What will you do? What would I do? This is how Corey writes about her experience. She lets us into her mind and her heart. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that. You must supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm. It sprang into my joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Corey was set free. She went on to write many books. One's called The Hiding Place. If you've never heard of her story, I, re I remember reading it as a teenager. It's a remarkable book. And she traveled over 60 countries proclaiming this radical news of God's love and forgiveness, how true freedom is only discovered when we are able to let go and forgive. Today we enter into a seven-week series called Last Words. And we'll be looking at the last words or phrases of Jesus from the cross did this at the last church I was a part of, got to be part of the series, and it's a really awesome series. I've been waiting and eager to do it here at New Hope, and that time has come. It will guide us through the Lent season that Emily mentioned. If you're familiar with uh, the church calendar, Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, we enter into the season of Lent, and Lent runs all the way to Monday, Thursday. The word Lent from Latin means 40th, is a 40-day time period of preparation. Now, you math nerds who are going to count all the days, I know who you are, there are 44. That's because Sundays don't count in Lent. So please don't email me. I just saved myself a bunch of work just right there. So our primary way here at New Hope we're going to celebrate Lent with followers of Jesus around the world is, as Emily said, to pray. And I want to encourage you to think about making that sacrifice to come pray with us at least once. And in the other times, join us at home or, or wherever you're at at 630. Also during the season of Lent, followers of Jesus often give up something or they, they fast something. My wife was explaining this to our daughters, and she said, Honey, 
when you give up something, it creates space for something else. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I, I like that. Well done, hon. I'm going to use that. And so what's something that you can give up for maybe the 40 days that can create space, hopefully, for God? And don't do this thing where you give up working out or vegetables or something. I mean, unless you're addicted to vegetables, and then that's really weird. So I'm giving up, and this, some of you just have no idea and don't think this is a sacrifice. It is for me. I'm giving up a sports talk radio. So some of you out there know what a sacrifice that is. So you can pray for me as I suffer for the Lord. Thank you. The last words series uh, looks at the seven last words or phrases of Jesus from the cross. There are 41 words in the Greek. Here's kind of a prequel of how the weeks will go from 9 a.m. to 12 noon. Here are the first three words. Today we'll explore, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Next week, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Week three, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And then from noon to three, we think there was darkness and no words. And then at 3 p.m., the final four words or phrases were spoken. Week four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Week five, I'm thirsty. Week six, it is finished. And then on Palm Sunday, we'll look at this phrase, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, as we talk about studying Scripture and making sure we do it well at New Hope, context and setting is everything. We can get some really weird things from Scripture if we don't look at it in context and setting. So as we go into the series, we must understand the setting. We must understand the context from which these words come. Jesus is not speaking forth these words from a nice blanket by the Sea of Galilee. That's not where they're coming from. They're coming from the cross. He's speaking them as he hangs from a cross, and we need to understand that. The, the, the writers of, of the gospel uh, tell us that, that he was crucified, Luke says, the skull, and that's what it was named. That was one of the vernaculars for it, because it looked like a skull, and it was protruding on top of a hill. In Aramaic, it's Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvary. The Romans chose one of the most public, high-up places because they wanted to humiliate the gospel writers, the four eyewitnesses, tell us very little about what crucifixion was. They all simply said, and they crucified him. Why is that? Well, that line we give all the time. The Bible wasn't written to us, but for us. The original audience of the gospel writers didn't need additional information about crucifixion. They understood what it was. They had experienced it. They had seen it. They had known people that had been crucified. We, not so much. It, the, the cross has probably prompted more works of art than any icon in history. I'm wearing one. Some of you may. Some of you may have a tattoo or earrings. We have crosses on stages, on tops of buildings, on the side of hospitals. That would be simply horrifying to first century people. It just would. It would be like putting an electric chair on stage or on top of our building or getting an electric chair tattoo. Uh, they, the word excruciating that we use is a Latin word, and it means out of the cross. That's what it was for them, excruciating. The Persians kind of created crucifixion. Alexander the Great spread it around the world. But the Romans, as they often did, perfected it. And they perfected it into a form of execution that was meant to be as slow and as painful as possible. They wanted not only to take the life of the person they were executing, but take uh, their humanity. They wanted to degrade them. There was a phrase they used for the crucified, the death of a beast, they called it. It was so horrible, Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified. So Jesus, as we know from the gospel writers, 
was flogged. He wasn't doing well at all. As was custom, he had to carry what's called the patibulum or a crossbeam, which was heavy, up the hill. He needed help. He's struggling mightily physically at this point. When he gets to the top of the skull, he's laid down. Uh, the nails go into the wrists so they can hold the body. And then he was thrust up on, on a beam that was already uh, in the ground. The, then we're told that the Roman soldiers strip him of all his clothing. He has nothing on. This was custom. Humiliating. Also especially humiliating for Palestinian Jew who, who, who had a high priority on modesty. Normally, crucified people stayed alive between three and four hours and three to four days, depending on what shape they were in. Some died of blood loss. Some died of cardiac rupture. Most died of what's called asphyxiation. The passive breathing that we're all doing now that we don't even recognize is impossible when you're hanging on a cross. The the way you're hanging, your organs press down, and it's tremendously difficult to breathe. To breathe, every time you have to push up like that, every breath and you die because you can no longer push up. How long can you hold out? Why do I I share this detail? And you might say this is unnecessary, but not in this instance. We're looking at the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. We must know the context. They're powerful in and of themselves. They're exceptionally powerful, knowing where they're coming from. And knowing that to every word he voices, he must push up to gain breath. We need to understand that to understand the significance of what these words mean for our lives. Luke uh, tells us that Jesus was praying in the garden. It's likely, I'm sure, he was praying during his trial up the Via Della Rosa as he carried the patibulum, as he was nailed to the cross. And so it's not, it, it's not a surprise that his first words or the phrases that are recorded are a prayer. What is surprising is that he was praying for others. His words... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Who's he talking about? Well, I think Luke tells us, and the gospel writers tell us who he's talking about. I think three groups of people. One are right at his feet, the Roman soldiers, his executioners that beat him and stripped him and nailed him to a cross, really couldn't care less about him. He's staring right at them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And then we have the broader crowd the people that gathered earlier to say crucify him, the people that are just there to gawk. I mean, who does that to show up to watch a crucifixion? That's those people. And they're jeering at him and yelling at him, throwing things at him, spitting at him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then last but not least, we have the religious leaders. I just picture them kind of standing like this, and we're told the, the word Luke uses is they're sneering at him. Ha-ha, <laughs> Jesus. Ha-ha, who won? And this is the quote. I'm sure there was many, but this is the one Luke chooses to quote. You saved many, Jesus, now save yourself. Well, little did they know he was working on that. That would be coming. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus was a man who walked his talk. Let's give him that. Jesus didn't just preach a good message and then go live another life as is so common for followers of Jesus. Jesus lived out what he told others to live out. Earlier in one of his first messages, Jesus said this. 
And this was a nice day, I picture, by the Sea of Galilee. But he says this, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And he did it. Here's the deal, though. This prayer wasn't, even, wasn't just meant for Jesus to pray. It's meant for all of us who follow him to not only pray, but to live out. Father, forgive them. What does this word mean? It's a very churchy word. Churchy words in time can really lose all meaning. We don't know what, it, what we're saying when we say them. The Greek word is aphiomi, aphiomi. It simply means, it's a very simple concept, it means to release something or to let it go. The opposite of forgiveness is to hold on. Hold on to our desire to get even, to even the score. Don't let go until we were able to do that. That's kind of the, the ideas around the words. So it can be illustrated with this, this is my dog's ball here. So this is the opposite of forgiveness. We hold on. Somebody does this wrong and we want to get even. This is natural. We don't have to conjure this up. I feel this all the time. I don't have to try. Like, oh, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go till I get even. A fee of me is this. Is to let go. It's like I'm going to let go of my desire to get even. Of maybe even my right to get even. I'm going to let go. That's what the word means. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Here's the deal as we look at how this correlates to our lives. Why do this? We live in a pretty savage world where everyone is wanting to get even. We don't have to try. It's just everywhere around us. That's how relationships work. That's how you get ahead. All of these type things that we live in, we swim in them all the time. And yet Jesus comes onto the scene and calls his followers to a radically different way of living. Why do this? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I've got a couple reasons, and I think they flow right from the passage. The first one, to be honest, is, is most difficult for me. I've been wrestling with this uh, all week as I, as I think through this message and how it might apply to my life. Why forgive? We forgive because people don't know what they're doing. Hmm. <laughs> That's what he said. In my early 20s, I worked with uh, handicapped students, developmentally disabled students, and it was one of the highlights of my life. I learned so much about God and myself and the friendships I formed with them. Learned a lot about what it's like to be human. And yet it was also really difficult because the school that I worked at was for development disabled students who were violent. So they couldn't be in the public school because they, they couldn't moderate their violence. Most of the time, they were incredibly wonderful people. And sometimes not, like all of us. And there were times in my years there that uh, I got headbutted, concussion, I got bit, I got yelled at and spit at. And one time I remember I was just sitting talking to one of them and, and he just punched me in the face, just right square in the face, hard. And I don't know about you, but when you get punched in the face, you have a natural internal desire that just takes over. No one likes that. If you like that, that's another message down the road for you. <laughs> and I had that. And, and my, my initial desire, you don't have to conjure this stuff up, it was to get even. And praise God, I didn't. We're trained the whole nine yards of how to respond to this situation. But it was difficult. And I felt that in me. It scared me. And then 
in that instance, I was able, because I knew these folks, not only were they development disabled, they had gone through so much trauma and abuse in their life. I knew a lot of their stories. And immediately, I was able to pretty quickly look in his eyes and be like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing, right? He doesn't want to hurt me. It's just, right? That's what Jesus is saying. But then, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yes, people do. Yes, they know what they're doing. No, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. See, we're, the Bible, is a, is it gives us the story of what we're caught up in. The Bible would tell us that we're, we're spiritually developmentally disabled and that we live in a savage world that's ruled by evil forces until God sets it free and makes things right, which he's in the process of doing, by the way. Paul in Romans 7 says this, So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It's like Paul's reading my diary. We don't know what we're doing. In Ephesians, he says it to the church this way, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What did he say? Our struggle is not against people but against the rulers, authorities. These are, these are entities of spiritual evil in the world, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We don't know what we're doing. I want you to picture just for a second someone in your life that has wronged you. It could have been in the past, something you're still wrestling with. It could be very, very present. Just picture their face for a second. It may be hard. Or maybe it's a public figure that you don't even know, but you don't like for whatever reason, and you struggle with that person and picture them. And then say this, say, say they, don't, they don't know what they're doing. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? Because you're like, yes, they do. <laughs> no, they don't. That's what Jesus would say. No, no, they don't. I've learned, uh, well, this is my personal opinion. I've been out here for five years, but uh, folks, here's the honest thing. Portland, Portland drivers are not great. Can I just say that honestly? Any amens? I mean, I don't know. So here's what happens to me on a regular occasion out here is like I'll get cut off and then the person's angry at me. And they start honking and yelling in the mirror and then they give me the bird and then they continue to yell. And so, again, I don't have to conjure up my response. You can guess my response. It's not very godly. And uh, so then my natural response is I start to ride their bumper really close. And I yell a little bit, um, and I'm apologizing if, if I've done that to any of you. <laughs> but like I'm riding their bumper, but I drive a Prius, so that's not that effective. It's like, you know, like a big deal, buddy. That's, that's, that's not hard to conjure up that behavior. That's just normal. That's just like, that's what people do. We just get even. Of course, he cut me off. What's his problem? Uh, someone on Staffy was sharing, she heard on the radio, this idea of like telling a better story. It's, it's powerful. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. That person cuts us off. What if our impulse is like, not like, let me ride their bumper and yell at them. And I joke with my wife, when I do that, I should not have a New Hope bumper sticker. I should get a bumper sticker from another church and just put it. <laughs> just kidding. What if, I, what if it's like, man, maybe they just left the doctor and got a diagnosis, or they just lost their job, or their spouse just left them. And that's telling a story of compassion, which I think is what Jesus is getting at here as we analyze this, 
It cultivates compassion in our hearts to take the extended hand of like, will, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And, and if we understand that they don't know what they're doing, with what Jesus tells us, and we really choose to believe that, and we're gracious with that, we have a gracious assumption, I think it changes the chemistry of our hearts as it comes to forgiveness. Here's another thing about forgiveness. It's meant to be preemptive. It's not reconciliation. That involves two people. That's a different thing. Forgiveness is us. Forgiveness is, is, is saying like, yeah, I, 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 you owe me, but I release it. I fear me. I'll let it go. And we don't need them to do that. We can choose to do that. So that's kind of the first reason. Why forgive in this crazy world that nobody forgives? People don't know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing. Secondly, we forgive because we follow Jesus. Our mission here is to follow Jesus and share his love. We believe that Jesus lived the life we're meant to live. He shows us what it's like to be truly human in the best possible way. And if we follow him, if we pattern our lives after him, we'll begin to experience that. Jesus let it go, so we should let it go. It's not optional. Peter, who, who was at the scene in the crucifixion, and we know he denied Jesus and ran, I still, I still think he was in the vicinity. I still think he's watching and he's taking it in. And he's kind of seeing what his Lord's doing. In shame, yes, but he's watching. This is what Peter wrote many years later. To this you recall because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. I'm exceptionally confident the early followers of Jesus got this and understood it. There was a group of them at the foot of the cross. They shockingly heard Jesus say these things. And that message of God's radical forgiveness spread like wildfire, not only throughout the church, but it fueled the gospel for the entire world. Because we live in a world where no one does this. And here's this man that calls us to a different way of living, a life of true freedom. But it's so incredibly hard. <laughs> and I love that story. I love, I love Corey Ten Boom's journal and letting us inside her mind. It makes me feel better about myself. This remarkable woman struggled so much to raise her hand. As she said, we need the power of the Spirit to do that. But I do think it's an initial choice of us to cooperate with the call to forgiveness and enter into giving the Spirit space to empower us to forgive. Finally, if we, if we just ask that simple question of why forgive and we scan the writers of Scripture, we get one response again and again and again and again. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Aphiomi, the Greek word for forgiveness, it's, it's an economic term. And you see the writers, the biblical writers, many of them using economic terms to explain what the gospel is all about, what the good news is all about. When we have a chance to forgive someone, someone wrongs us and we either forgive or don't forgive, or we wrong someone else and they have to forgive us, what's happening is one party owes the party something else. We feel that. Someone does you wrong, you feel that they owe you something, your natural response in our brokenness is to get even, to even the score. You don't have to try. That just comes, and it's reinforced everywhere. Forgiveness is canceling the debt. 
Forgiveness is, is letting go of that desire and even that right to get even. So the gospel readers bring this into the gospel as they explain what happened on the cross and what it means for each of us. Let's, uh, let's just say that a ledger of our sins is kept. And, and the ledger is basically what we owe, all the ways we fall short of the glory of God. I don't know about you, maybe some of you have a very short ledger. Mine would be reams of paper upon paper upon paper, ways that I've fallen short. The scriptures tell us that the wages, economic term, of falling short is death, or that's just another way of saying separation from a holy God, because God is loving, wants to be with us. God's also just. We want justice. Justice doesn't disappear. God is a just God. So what do we do? We've got this massive ledger that we can't possibly pay, and a holy God we're meant to be in relationship with that dearly loves us, and what do we do? That's the whole story that we're caught up in. We can do nothing. God puts on flesh, comes down, hangs on a cross. As Peter said, I love that phrase, he bore our sins on the tree, bore my sins, bore your sins. And then one of the favorite words the biblical writers use for what happens is when we look to Jesus, we're redeemed. It's an economic term. It means we're set free from our debt. That as we look to Jesus, the writers say that that by faith, it's credited to us, another economic term, as righteousness. What does that look like when we're forgiven, when we look to what Jesus did for us? It looks like God taking, and again, just an analogy here, but mine would be Reims. I look to Jesus. I can't pay it. I want to be in relationship. Look to him. I can't do anything. He comes in and says, all right, John, you're done. Just free. All that stuff, all the ways you run. All your brokenness, just gone. I got it. Done. And here's the the catch. God did that for me. God did that for you. He calls us to do that for others. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Jesus let it go so that we could let it go. Jesus let it go so that we could let it go. And here's what you're thinking. Here's what I thought all week. But it's not right. It's not right. They owe me. Who's going to make things right? We want justice. Justice happened right there. Right there. We don't have to do justice. (laughs) It's not our business. Right? Peter said, I love that phrase, that we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Forgiveness is our choice to cancel our debt with one another, to let go of our desire to get even. We let it go because Jesus let it go for us. There's that great story in Matthew 18. Jesus never talked for long and had points and slides like I do. He was a much more effective teacher. He told stories, and you may know this story, but Matthew 18, a man owes a king a mighty amount, my ledger, my reams of paper, can't ever possibly owe, gets on his face before the king, and the king's merciful. The king says, done done. He's like, whoa. He releases that picture of him dancing in the road. He's set free. If the story ended there, it'd be remarkable. But it takes a very dark turn. He bumps into someone who owes him a very small amount, someone who's cut him off on the road. And this man can't pay, grabs him by the throat, has him thrown into prison. The king hears about it. It does not go well for the king. George Herbert's a British poet. He, he says it like this. He who cannot Forgive another breaks the bridge over which 
he must pass himself. Jesus let it go so that we could let it go. Paul says it to this, like this to the Class A church. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That word bear, it means simply to hold up. And when I was thinking about this, the image, my girls are 9 and 12 now, but the image of holding up an infant came to mind. And many of you have held infants. Some of you haven't. You should try it out. It's awesome most of the time. But if you've been a parent, if you've been a grandparent, I mean, all of us have probably had the experience of holding an infant that's fussy. And sometimes during the night, whoo, it's really difficult. And you're like, okay, shh, 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 <laughs> And I would, this is, it's horrible. It just happens with any, right? I'd want to get even. It sounds terrible. But eventually you just get really frustrated. You're like, shh. What did I tell you? Be quiet, you know? And you're just like, you're like losing it. You're like, you know, you've had no sleep. And I'm just being very honest here. Obviously, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> the baby's never going to turn and be like, I'm so sorry, Father, that I interrupted your sleep. I'd like you to get back to bed now. <laughs> That's never going to happen. <laughs> That's the word. It's such a beautiful word. This is what we're to do for one another when we're wronged. We bear we hold up, shh, shh, it's okay, it's okay. Oh my goodness, this is difficult. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Here's the big catch. Jesus wasn't just praying that and saying that for the soldiers or for the crowd or for the religious leaders. He's saying that for this guy and for all of us. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness is so incredibly difficult. All of us wrong one another and are wronged on a daily basis countless times. The debt's going back and forth. You can't even keep track of who owes who what and who's mad at who. It's a disorienting to our hearts and our souls. But today, I guarantee you, you will have the opportunity to forgive. The extended hand will be out to you. What will you do? What will I do? Will we hold on? Or will we let it go? Forgiveness is one of the hardest things we'll ever have to do in life. But you know what is more difficult than forgiveness? Not forgiving. In all my years of pastoral ministry, I can't say every time, but almost every time, when I'm working with someone who is struggling to forgive, the effects of them not forgiving are almost always more pronounced than the effects of the original offense. It imprisons us when we choose not to forgive. But when we choose to forgive, we're set free. I want to call the worship team up. We want to uh, give our church as a community time to wrestle with this stuff in real time before we come to the table, which we do every Sunday. And one of the ways that the scriptures tell us to prepare our hearts for the table is to be aware of our horizontal relationships and making sure that we're doing what we can to maintain and keep forgiveness before we come to the table. We want to give you that opportunity here this morning. Chelsea is going to lead us through this moment, and we're going to present a new song uh, to you that I think you'll really like. It's, it's beautiful, it's easy to sing, and it's brilliant lyrics in my opinion, and hopefully it gets in the bones of our church during this Lent season. We'll, we'll be singing it over the next couple of weeks. It's called His Mercy is More, and the chorus goes like this. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. 
So the team almost is a prayer, and, and you can catch on quickly. You can begin praying it with them. We'll, uh, Chelsea will lead us through a time here. We'll, we'll pray that, and then we'll actually have a prayer. We'll give you a tool, a prayer of forgiveness that you can pray. Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to Chelsea and come back up um, to lead us to the table. Why don't we just uh, start off right now by just taking a couple of deep breaths. Um, go ahead and close your eyes and let yourself just settle into your seat a little bit. And we'll just take a minute to reflect and um, just in the quiet of your own heart, just invite the spirit to begin to bring to mind those areas in your heart where you have not forgiven someone or where you are lacking compassion and just invite the spirit to begin doing that work. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. As we continue to reflect on what it would look like to forgive the way that Jesus forgives. This prayer is on the screens right now, and I'd invite you to just use it as a template as the Spirit brings to mind where we need to practice compassion and who we might need to forgive today. now that the words on the screen have changed just a little bit and I want to invite us to just together by unifying our hearts and our minds and practicing together forgiving the way that Jesus forgave us why don't we pray this prayer out loud and we'll just read it together so let's go ahead and read this father as Jesus modeled 
we choose to forgive and let it go. We do not know what we are doing. We forgive in the power of your spirit because you have forgiven us. Why don't we sing together, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, his mercy is again. 